1: Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas Purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash Hey, we're doing our best to navigate a way through uh, a pretty tricky time for media companies like ours. And if you want to help us, uh, there are actually a couple of ways. Uh, the first is, as I've mentioned, is to support us. Click on the link in the show notes, go to canadalandshowcom slash join. Either way, you can give us five bucks a month, to get ad free podcasts. That is a great way to help us. If you're already doing that, or you don't want to do that, tell people about Canada land that does help spread the word about the show. Give us a good review wherever on Apple podcasts um, or just spread the word on social media. Cause there's a lot of people who could be listening to the show who aren't. And that does help us in a lot of different ways. Thanks. Ryan McMahon infielder for the Colorado Rockies.
1: Yes, and uh, a professional football player whose career was cut short due to a cocaine habit. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Joining me from
0: Winnipeg, uh, Ryan, today we're going to talk about shocking, offensive stuff from Brian Adams. It turns out that uh, Summer of 69 is not about the year
1: 1969. It is not.
0: Yeah, also he's a kind of a schmuck. We'll talk about that. Who can you trust to report on the RCMP violating a sacred indigenous ceremony? That's not a hypothetical question. Ryan, who who did you trust with that? We're going to find out. And we're going to talk about Gian Gameshi's comeback attempt, take three. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Nora Platt, Amanda Bell, Bruce Stewart, Derek Liz Chasson, Anna Sobolevska, Ryan Driver, Casey Smith, and Alex Bork.
1: Hi, I'm Alex Bork from Montreal, and I support Canada Land because I believe in their mission to deliver high-quality, independent journalism while holding big media to account. They've also introduced me to some of my favorite writers like Ryan McMahon and Sarah Haji. Thanks, Canada Land.
0: So, Ryan, um, Brian Adams' legions of fans were uh, supposed to be joining him for a tendency of gigs at the Royal Albert Hall. But as he put it on social media, Brian Adams wrote, thanks to some fucking bat-eating, wet-market, animal-selling, virus-making, greedy bastards, the whole world is now on hold. That did not go over so well.
1: No, it didn't. And, you know, of course, an apology has already been rendered as per standard social media etiquette. And uh, and he said, sorry. And he said, uh, hey, look, I'm not racist. I'm vegan. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I feel like we've been here before with the vegans that say terrible things about cultures that eat animals, uh, namely Inuit people in the north with their annual uh, seal harvest and uh it seems to be familiar territory,
0: yeah, I mean he was he was kind of vegan with a dash of racism, but he was obviously going for I'm sure he was surprised by this because I think he's he's obviously comfortable in this uh like kind of the worst kind of vegans, like these kind of militant like fuck you, you agro industry cattle herding, animal slaughtering, motherfuckers, like this kind of really <laughs> aggressive, but then he just sort of veers off like wait wait a second where does where does <laughs> Greed come into it. Where does virus make it? Like it's just sort of like very effortlessly shifted into a complete anti Asian uh, screed, just like a collection of the worst things you could be saying. Like describe, you know. And it's interesting to see his defenders like, what? He didn't even mention China. <laughs> That's not racist. He didn't mention Chinese people, which is actually really funny, Ryan, right? to see people defending him, who I don't think under any other context would be pro vegan. Like it's like you're kind of like. Meat and potatoes Canadians, anti-political correctness Canadians who are like on side with this militant, aggressive (laughs) vegan because like the streams got crossed.
1: Yeah. And it's always shocking to see how quickly people will fall to the feet of their hero to defend them without really understanding like, you know, words have meaning. And uh, these words, I believe, kept in context, clearly, (laughs) clearly are racist. Why are the Chinese greedy? Huh? Is it because they're one of the the capitalist superpowers of the world? Like, where are we going here, Brian Adams? And, you know, it's there's a bit of joy. It's a terrible thing that that he said uh, and fuck that guy. But there's a bit of joy watching these assholes kind of squirm out of the rabbit hole. They've ducked themselves in backwards to try to. But uh, I know what I actually meant. (laughs) Uh and I go to a wet market all the time. That's where I get my fish. And uh I've got no problem with a wet market. When I want to go get like a nice smoked Manitoba gold eye, wet market. When I want to go find some fresh salmon, some wild salmon, wet market. Um the Chinatown, the Chinatowns uh multiple that I frequent in almost every city I do comedy in, uh, wet market. It's where I get my food from and to try to even sympathize with these words is a stretch. I mean, I just don't see how anyone can go, "Oh, yeah, I see I see what he meant." However, there are some really close friends of mine that have fallen to the feet of one of Canada's heroes and went like, "Oh, what? Because he's white, automatically it's racist?" And we've just taken 20 steps backwards uh with this one because so many people are defending him and uh Defending Brian Adams is good honor.
0: First of all, I've been wildly inappropriate for the last couple of months because I giggle every time somebody says "wet market." I don't know why. <laughs> you child, I'm having problems with this segment? No, I look. I have the privilege to just enjoy this because, I mean, I think that if I were Asian, you know, those words might they might cut like a knife just to hear that description from somebody famous with the platform like that would be hurtful in a way that like, I'm just enjoying watching him suffer um, A, because I've just just i always despised like there's just no consent in having Brian Adams' music in your life as a Canadian. It's just foisted upon you because of CanCon rules. And you know, John Semley, journalist John Semley who likes to say actually he famously was kicked out of the CanCon rules. Well, I did my homework, John Semley and that was for waking up the neighbors but Brian Adams' reckless <laughs> In fact, came before that, and all of the songs that are on endless repeat on malls and supermarkets, all of the fucking songs, uh, Feels Like Love with Teenage. Turner. No, all these songs that I just like, why? Why just because I live in this country do I have to hear these songs from the 80s? Nobody else in the world is listening to this it felt like just a few weeks ago, like nothing would ever break that spell. We just have to listen to Brian Adams because we okay, live first, here. And now maybe, all, maybe we can finally get rid of the Brian Adams.
1: First of all, I just reread my contract and I did not sign on to talk about a Brian Adams discography. Okay. So first of all, <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> and and second of all, the other thing that I find really curious is how... Everyone started associating and defending Brian Adams through Don Cherry and Justin Trudeau. And, you know, we're running out of heroes, Jesse Brown. (laughs) We are nearly out of heroes because, you know, people are saying things like, well, if what Brian Adams did was racist and if what Don Cherry did was racist and if Justin Trudeau uh, is racist for three photographs of him in blackface well then what isn't racist? And (laughs) and I just, it's not funny.
0: Maybe you actually agree with them. Maybe you're like, yes, now you've got it.
1: Right. It's not funny, but we are just not equipped to talk about racism in Canada. And, and I don't know where that, uh, where the responsibility lies there uh, and who's at fault there. But, uh, (laughs) everything I do, I do it for this podcast.
0: You're my hero, Ryan. Last night, Don Cherry was trending. Trudeau Gate was trending. And when you clicked on those hashtags, it was just like people saying, "Why is this trending?" <laughs> and yeah. it was just people mentioning Don Cherry in the context of Brian Adams. Let this be the end of it. Let this be the end. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. We can. We can. <laughs> like, there's so many reasons to cancel Brian Adams. You know, I, if I'll take racism, it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> whatever I can. But use.
1: his apology was like look, man, I just really wanted to do these shows at Royal Albert Hall. And, and that's my work. I wanted to go to work for Canadians. <laughs> that's my work. <laughs> and it's like, Brian Adams, I'm pretty sure you're not hauling guitars and running cables and pointing lights. Like, you fucking show up at 9 p.m. after your openers are done exhausting themselves for your fucking half-wit audience. And then you show up and it's sing the hits for an hour. Like... If that is work, Brian Adams, then uh, lucky you.
0: Ryan, usually we kind of on this show look at what's been in the media after it's been published and talk about how the coverage went. But we kind of have an interesting opportunity here to talk about a different sort of approach to media, which is like when you have a story that the media should be reporting, but you don't know who you can trust it with. And my understanding is that you were in that position recently recently and maybe you could just like summarize what the story was and what decisions you made about who to take it to and how you felt about the outcome.
1: Yeah, so I was scrolling Facebook as we are wont to do during these COVID times, and I saw a post from a young friend of mine, Andre Baer. He's a law student and um, quite a dynamic young leader, very grounded culturally in his own ceremonial practices. He's Cree, um, originally from Saskatchewan, and he posted a copy of an email letter that was sent to Chief Edwin Ananis, who is the chief of Beardy's Oak Macy's, uh Reserve in Saskatchewan. And from what I can tell, um, this letter came from Health Canada and FNIHB. And it was basically saying that there was a phone call placed to Health Canada reporting the uh, intention of the community to do a Sundance ceremony over the weekend. And Health Canada sent this letter to say, you know, there is a public health order That uh, speaks to limiting groups and gatherings to less than 10. And this letter was sent to the chief and was brought to the attention of the folks, you know, at the Sundance. And soon thereafter, uh, the RCMP showed up at the Sundance to break up the Sundance. And this is an example of where, you know, really the pavement hits the road, so to speak, where the sensitivity needed just to enter a Sundance, just as anybody. Is you know is through the roof. You really need to know the protocols and what you're doing to be able to walk onto a Sundance ground. And here, by order of you know Health Canada, FNiHB, the RCMP, go to break up this Sundance ceremony. And it was clear uh, through the intentions of of the chief and and the Sundance chief that they were going to follow social distance rules and that they had put many precautions in, despite the fact that they are definitely in sort of contravention to the way a Sundance would normally run. But they decided on their own that they were going to to do their best to social distance and do what they had to do in order to carry through uh, with this ceremony.
0: Let me make sure I understand. As it was reported, ultimately, this was a Sundance ceremony, that part of the point of which was to pray for an end to this plague of, the, of this coronavirus. But it does involve contravening the rules of no more than 10 people, but the chief was in consultation with Health Canada. They were taking all kinds of internal security precautions. I read that they took people's temperatures, there was social distancing practiced, but there was a violation of the 10-person rule done intentionally and trying to do that as safely as possible. And the authorities responded to that by sending in the RCMP. And as I understand it, like coming into a ceremony like this with like weapons, you know, everything that it evokes from history of RCMP breaking up Indigenous ceremony and then specifically a lack of cultural awareness and sensitivity like weapons should not be present at an event like this 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 yeah This was ugly.
1: It was ugly and you know, you just have to I mean, you know just for the sake of uh, of the analogy, you know walking into a church with guns in your holster to break up Sunday mass, you know, it just wouldn't make sense and so there's an obvious obvious tension there that I think is is unavoidable when Things like this happen, and I I just, you know, and I know it's been identified that they and they've stated that they were praying for, you know, an end to COVID. I want to be really clear that, you know, when we say we are praying to end COVID, we don't believe that our prayers put up an invisible force field over the ones we love or over Canada or over the universe. We are in our own prayerful way reflecting and and taking moment of pause and contemplation over over the moment we're in and. But what I will say is that when we go to Sundances or when we go to Sweat Lodge or rain dance ceremonies or other ceremonies that we really can't talk about over a podcast, we are going there for healing, literally going there for healing. And so the tension between sort of this idea of Western medicine and traditional indigenous medicine and health practices I mean, is, is enormous. And, and there are indigenous clinics around Canada that have been inspected by Health Canada and, and have passed those inspections with flying colors that include things like Sundances and sweat lodges and traditional medicines picked right from the land, processed by indigenous people, stored by indigenous people. Health Canada has approved these clinics. I can think of, of a handful of them off, right off the top of my head. One in Fort Capel and Treaty four in the Fort Capel Valley. It's an incredible clinic. It looks like any other clinic you would go to in Toronto or Vancouver or Ottawa, but when you walk through the front part of the clinic and you enter into the back area, that's where you find the sweat lodge and, and the traditional medicine uh, storage and everything. So there are examples where these things don't have that tension, but this past weekend in Beardy's uh, that tension was definitely present. And how we tie this back to a media story and talking about it through that lens is, you know, when I came across it, I immediately, you know, messaged Andre and I was just thinking, you know, like this is going to be really big. This is going to catch a lot of traction online. Certainly once sort of native Facebook and native Twitter grab it, it's going to be a story that will need to be told. And, uh, you know, at the time of this recording, there's over a thousand shares on this post. And, um, and I didn't know who to hand this story off to. I was really concerned about like, well, who, Who can bring the cultural context, who can bring the significance of the Sundance to this story? Now, of course, you know, the facts are the facts. And and what has been reported through CBC Saskatoon is full of the facts. But there is a sensitivity that is needed in a context, I think, that should be kept uh, when reporting on stories like this.
0: Sure, because on the one hand, you could see thousands of people sharing this on Indigenous Twitter and uh, online on Facebook and saying, fuck off RCMP with your guns on reserve in a religious ceremony. This is enraging on the one hand. On the other hand, you can see a wider, you know, settler Canada saying, are you kidding me? A sweat lodge during coronavirus? And, you know, like this is going to be a vector for spread of disease. And in the the most, it's an explosive, it has explosive
1: potential, this story on both sides. And it is. I mean, I I should also tell you that it is, you know, on the indigenous side of the conversation, people are split. You know, people are definitely split and they're saying like, now is not the time for ceremony. Let's wait it out. Can we push the ceremonies to later in the summer when we have a bit more information? And then there are others that say, you know, historically, when we faced things like the Spanish flu and other things, this is exactly what we did. And therefore, this is what we're doing. And there's a real ugly split there. And, and you know, when you go through the comments on Andre's post and even subsequently, you know, Andre has posted about this over the last two weeks. He's he's made a number of posts where you know he's talked about these things. Uh, people going into the sweat lodge. There was uh, a statement made by Dr. James Macokus and Dr. Evan Adams that actually caught quite a lot of traction. That similarly talked about the need to end indigenous ceremonies during the time of COVID. And these two prominent indigenous doctors basically came out and said. Now not the time for sweat lodges. We should not be in in small contained spaces, sweating with each other, breathing on each other, you know, under COVID conditions. Andre posted that, and he got roasted for it. Mm-hmm. So it's a very controversial topic. I mean, it's one that even you know, even I would say, you know, I I can see both sides, and I'm sort of unwilling to pick a side because everybody has the free will and and choice to to enter into prayer in that way, and it's heated to to say the least.
0: Yeah, I don't think we have to take a side here. And, you know, uh, this is a time when the decisions that are made on an individual basis can have wider impact. But it's one thing to have that debate within the community. It's another thing to put it on CBC's websites for everybody to chime in on. How did you decide to take that to CBC? What made you make that decision? And were you happy with the outcome?
1: I just sent the post and the letter to a few different Indigenous journalists that I know have attended ceremonies similar to this that have the context, know what a Sundance looks like and feels like. How, in fact, I would say a Sundance probably has the least amount of personal contact and danger. The whole point of a Sundance is, you know, you're kind of set aside to do your own prayer and your own what is called a stall and you're there on your own. The Sundance chief comes and visits, but it's probably the least contact. There are there are ceremonies where there's far more personal contact and, and group contact Sundance, you know, not being one of them. So I wanted to find somebody that really understood that. I'm actually not too sure how this trickled down into the space that it did. But to the handful of indigenous journalists that I I trusted and wanted to tell this to, I just felt like, yeah, they could do a good job of articulating why this was important and why it was important to really hold on to the context of what was happening.
0: It seems to have been kind of just like you said, like uh, CBC laid out the facts and it doesn't seem to have sparked a huge angry reaction on either side. So maybe that's a win just to get this on the record that this is happening without this being kind of like targeting anybody for a huge wave of hate.
1: Yeah, and I I should also say, like, I, you know, reached out to some other peers and colleagues, um, some from the Yellowhead Institute at Ryerson who are doing a lot of really amazing work. And I thought this is something that if this goes, if this goes wrong through the media, we're going to need a response. And, you know, the last thing we want is, Canada dumping their frustration and anger and hate onto a, a small reserve north of Saskatoon. You know, last thing we need is, is is more violence against Indigenous people because the optics are such that, you know, Native people are not only do they not respect the rule of law in Canada, but they don't respect the restrictions under COVID. It, it's a dicey relationship. And
0: and imagine, imagine if you like fed that to journalists and then some sort of sensationalistic story like that came out and, you know, that, that was the outcome. I mean, that's a lot on you.
1: I guess for me, as an indigenous person, like i I'm just always aware that that tension is there, and the possibility for a story like this to blow up and go the wrong way is ever present. and you know, yesterday actually was the three year anniversary of the appropriation prize debacle. Uh, Michael Stewart, formerly of Rabble, posted this and reminded us all three years ago to the day, Tuesday night would have been three years ago that the appropriation prize debacle broke out on Twitter and. I'm always just reminded of how how few voices we have in mainstream papers and mainstream spaces that a story like this in the wrong hands, yeah, can go really wrong and can be told really wrong. And, you know, if you don't understand the material, it's I think it's really tough to write it and, um, and to write about it. And so that tension and that pressure is always present.
0: Well, it seems that David Shield and Creed and Martel, who are the reporters with CBC Saskatoon, did okay by this one. They sure did. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Ryan, uh, we note things on this show. We do so duly. And a lot of stuff is going overlooked right now because all eyes are on COVID all the time. I'll start us off. This one's a long time coming. People will remember the Fifth Estate report on passport babies. Ah, A very scary, scary report with all this information about how Canada is being used and exploited. And there's this industry where um, really it was targeting like Chinese birth tourists are coming to Canada, having a baby here, overloading our medical system. And they're doing so to get the baby Canadian citizenship, to get a a Canadian passport. And then they're just going home. And uh, Mm -hmm. what a bunch of dupes we are. Now, this was uh, a very, very widely. I'm not even going to say controversial, that's sort of a weasel word. Like this was like a disastrous report because the journalism just seemed on its face to be like unsound and also really torqued because they never established in this report, how big a problem is this? It was, it seemed to be really focused on one hospital in BC and they said, you know, there are 5,000 Canadians a year who are uh, non-resident births. So, and you just make the association, wow, it's like 5,000 of these passport babies. No, 5,000 people total, right? Like refugee claimants, uh, people who are in the process of getting their residency, people who are traveling and happen to be in Canada, people for whatever reason have a baby in Canada, and then some portion of that are part of this, you know, supposed industry of passport babies. And people were very angry about this, and there were charges that this was a very racist report. and. What I want to duly note today is that at long last, the CBC's internal accountability mechanism, the Office of the CBC Ombudsman, just uh, recently issued their verdict from a a listener complaint, a viewer complaint. And Jack Nagler, the CBC Ombudsman, accepted that this was journalism that did not fit, that did not meet the standards of CBC's journalistic standards and practices. And he wrote, Mm -hmm. like, this failed to tell you how big a problem this actually is. When you say many of the 5,000 are passport babies, does that mean hundreds? Does it mean thousands? Right. Like, like There's no way of knowing. And given that you didn't really define the problem, the size of the problem. I mean, if this is just a few dozen, then who cares? You know, especially when you're talking about something as fundamental as the idea that Canadian citizenship goes to anyone born here. Like that's an idea that is bigger than a problem of of these passport babies, supposedly like that has to do with refugees and immigrants and like what makes a Canadian a Canadian. Some people think that's a fundamental part of what makes this country what it is. After failing to really define the scope of the problem, this report also gave a solution. It gave a voice to people who were calling for an end to the policy of birthright citizenship. which is a major decision for candidate to make. And so on this uh, fifth estate report, you had people advocating for that. And according to the ombudsman of the CBC, it included no explanation of why such a policy is a good idea. And so he dinged them for that too. All of which would seem to suggest that like, okay, CBC does have a valid mechanism for accountability and transparency here, except for the fact that ultimately the ombudsman concludes that despite those problems with the report, there is no evidence of bias in this report. Wow. Right. And that's kind of the fundamental here is the idea that our public broadcaster for so many different people on different sides of the spectrum that's what they argue is like, it's, it's a gross idea that your own public broadcaster is producing biased journalism. Like they're actually making propaganda against your politics, against your interests, against your beliefs. You're paying for it. And they're using bad journalism to push forward the agenda. And what do you do? And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go to the ombudsman. And this is a case mm. where that process just failed. Ultimately, it failed because if, if this isn't evidence of bias, what the fuck is?
1: Duly noted. Ryan, do you have something for us? I do. And I apologize in advance for for bringing it back to COVID, but um, there's just too much to talk about and too much to say that I think really needs to rise back to the surface for, for a moment. And it has nothing to do with Canada. Well, here in Canada, we're worried about how many feet are in between the hipster's blankets on beaches in Vancouver and whether people can go to the weed store, et cetera. The Navajo Nation in America is being decimated by COVID, and I want to point to a few things that people might not be aware of, and then I want to give out a URL for a a fundraiser for the Navajo Nation. The federal watchdog that examines the tribal relief funding distribution has just put out information saying that, yes, we are late, and yes, the funding is not flowing to Native America. Uh, we're sorry, we're on it. And a watchdog is now investigating Trump and his officials role in the failure and the distribution of this relief funding. In the meantime, what has happened is there was a group from Ireland that uh, supported the Navajo Nation and the Hopi communities hit hard by COVID-19 in this act of solidarity that points back to Hundreds uh, of years ago, in the mid 1800s, where the Choctaw Nation put aside $170 to donate to Ireland during a, a famine and sent that money to Ireland. And so the Irish have put together a, a fund to support uh, these communities in return, which is, you know, quite beautiful. Just a day ago, Doctors Without Borders have made their way to Navajo Nation to try to give some relief and you really need a snapshot of what's going on in the Navajo Nation to understand. It's an absolute food desert. We're talking about a massive swath of land. We think the province of Ontario is big when you're trying to drive, you know, out to BC to go see the mountains and you leave Toronto and 2 days later <laughs> you're still in Ontario. That's similar to the Navajo Nation. This is a massive massive swath of land. Mm-hmm. And it's a food desert. And one in three residents lack access to running water there. Estimated population of nearly 170,000 people. And uh, per capita, they are absolutely the hardest hit by COVID-19 in America. And we're talking like by a long shot. And so there is a fundraiser. And the website is protectthesacred.care. If people have a dollar at this time to give... I would urge them to give because while we think, you know, things are bad and and uneasy up here in Canada, um, they're absolutely unimaginable down in the Navajo Nation. I have friends down there that are working 23 hours a day volunteering, doing water delivery, making sandwiches for people, checking on elders, and let's not forget it's the desert and so it's hot. And the conditions down there are just really, really tough. And so if people have it in their heart and in their wallet to uh, check it out, protectthesacred.care.
0: Protectthesacred.care, duly noted. We reported a story late last week that Gian Gameshi is back again. He's launched another podcast. And... Last time he did that, it was like this homemade affair where he was sort of doing the uh, the rhyming essays that he used to do uh, on cue over like beats that he made. It was very kind of like DIY and it sort of uh, fizzled out. This time it's much more slick. He has financial backers. There's a, a company that's been incorporated, a new media company. Some of his financial backers are anonymous. One of them is a very prominent member of the Iranian Canadian community, Mehrdad Arianejad. And he is the CEO of a registered charity called Tigran, and it gets money from the province. It operates an Iranian cultural festival. And that's kind of what Gameshi's new podcast is about. It's about the culture of the Iranian diaspora around the world. And it places Gameshi sort of central as your guide to this world of Persians all around the world doing amazing things. And like I say, it's a much more slickly produced affair. So I called up Merdad Arianejad. And I asked him some questions about why, you know, this is like, seems to me a very worthy project to have a, a podcast about the Iranian diaspora. Why would he choose a person to host it who remains accused by over 20 people of violent sexual assault, sexual harassment, sexual misconduct? And I asked him other questions like, you know, is your charity involved with this? Is government money paying for a Jean Gameshi podcast? Mm-hmm. He told me that it's just a coincidence that this new media company uh, shares uh, an address at the same building that the charity used to work out of. Uh, they're totally separate. This is a commercial enterprise. It's totally separate from the charity. And then he went on to tell me that he did not believe the women who accused Gomeshi in court. And, of course, that includes uh, one woman who accused him in court who Gameshi actually apologized to. He was accused of sexually assaulting Catherine Burrell. And there was an eyewitness to that act. And Gameshi apologized to her for that when she agreed for the charge to be withdrawn. But he says he doesn't believe Gomeshi's courthouse accusers. And as for all of the other accusers who did not take their accusations to court, he says, well, why didn't they? And, you know, Gomeshi has apologized, he says. He's entitled to a second chance. He's going to give Gomeshi a second chance. Ryan, when we reported that story, there were a number of people asking us and asking me, well, doesn't... That guy have a point, you know? Doesn't Gameshi deserve a second chance? What's he supposed to do for the rest of his life? Starve? Is he supposed to sit in a corner for the rest of his life? Like, what do we want from this guy? Why are we hounding him with our journalism? And I wanted to talk about it here. I bring all this up, you know, because this is kind of where I answer those questions. And my answer is, I mean, I do have an opinion about what Gian Gomeshi can go do with the rest of his life, but it doesn't matter what my opinion is. Like, it doesn't matter what I think. I'm not a judge... I don't dole out sentencing to creeps and alleged creeps. I'm not the one who gets to determine whether this guy gets to have a career in media or otherwise. If enough people decide that he can have that, then he'll have that. But my role in this and the role of, I think, anybody covering the media is pretty clear. This is a new development in one of the biggest media stories that's ever occurred in this country. And, and that's what we cover. So it's, it's a no-brainer that on, on a level of like a news brief, which is what uh, our editor Jonathan Goldsby put out, we're going to tell you that this happened, you know? But there, mm. is, there is something beyond just like, here's the new development in this ongoing Gomeshi story that I wanted to describe a bit here because I do feel like I have a specific responsibility to this story Because Gomeshi has decided that the way he's going to try to move forward and try again to come back is not through forgiveness. When people are saying, well, you know, can't he be forgiven? Because he's only apologized to one person of over 20 accusers. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to be forgiven. He wants to be forgotten. Or he wants the accusations to be forgotten. Mm -hmm. He's never dealt with this stuff. You know, he's never answered questions. I've never had a chance to interview him about the accusations. He's never faced his accusers in court He's never explained what he did that he needed to apologize for. He was very vague in that apology. When he wrote that disastrous essay for the New York Review of Books, he wildly represented and downplayed what he'd been accused of. And and then when he puts out these two different podcast attempts, the conceit is just to kind of pretend like it never happened. He just doesn't acknowledge or deal with anything in his past. And so I feel like that's the path forward that he's hoping eventually with time he can get is for people to forget And I think that that's possible. I think he has a shot at that because as big as this story was, Ryan, like this was just the only story, it seemed, during the trial and before that, when this was first broken in the the star, you would think that like people are never going to forget. But it's amazing to me how people forget. Like a shocking number of people think that the women who came forward and broke the news that Gomeshi was an alleged sexual predator, that those women were later shredded on the stand at his trial. And that's just like, false. The women who took the stand were completely different individuals than the women who broke the silence on Gameshi, the women who I reported on initially. People conflate that. People forget that when it comes to the accusations of violence themselves, not one of them has ever been disproven on the stand or anywhere. So people remember that he was acquitted of some of these charges. They forget about his apology. They forget about Riva Seth. They forget about all the other people who corroborated these accounts and who had allegations of their own. So again, like, it's not up to me if people decide to forgive Gameshi, but I'll be damned if people forget. And that's my role in this, you know? And like, there were other people just saying like, fuck, did you need to put his face and name in front of me again? You know, Gameshi's back on Canada Land. Like, I don't want to hear about him anymore. And I get it. Like, that sucks. And frankly, I'm not so thrilled about this either. Like, people don't care like they used to. Like, it's not for clicks. It's just kind of like, I guess this is my responsibility. And like, I accept the price. Like, I benefited from this story. It helped me, uh, my career, to to have broken this story. But there's a price for that. And I think the price is, like, there are sources who sacrificed a lot to get facts onto the record. So I'm going to be the keeper of those facts. When he wants people to forget, I will dig up the receipts and I will present them. And if I have to, I will re-present them and re-present them until he, like, deals with them.
1: Yeah. I have a lot to say here, and and maybe I'll just say a couple of quick things to kind of respond back to what you're saying. First, yes, did you benefit from telling the story? I suppose you could frame it that way, but I wouldn't necessarily put it that way. That's pretty, <laughs> that's not really a, a good way to frame it. If you've benefited from breaking the story and, and sticking with this story, you've also accepted the responsibility of keeping the receipts and of staying on top of the story. And so benefited, okay, I guess some could say that. But I think what's impressed me about this, and at the at the risk of rest in peace, my mentions and people wanting to destroy me for giving you praise, uh, Jesse Brown, I think you and Canada Land can be commended for staying on top of this because few else are. And the example of the New York Review of Books um, essay that he printed, I didn't see a lot of criticism about the essay, but you dug into it, and so. In response to you saying you benefited from this, I don't like it framed that way. I think you did your job. I think that that job has evolved and changed and morphed through time. And I personally think that it's important someone is paying attention. So you've accepted the responsibility of doing so. And I think that that's you know, commendable as as much as half your listeners hate it when you're commended for doing a good job. I think that that's, that's really important to point out. The second thing I want to say is that the irony of Roque being a Farsi word that translates to candid or straightforward conversation. He's done anything, but he's not been candid. He's a fucking liar. And he's not ever owned up to his part in this. And, uh, and so the irony there is not lost on me. And thirdly, I think it's really interesting and really important because I've seen similar things happen in the indigenous community where someone who has done something really terrible who's done something untoward, someone I may have known, or even someone of high profile that has done wrong in the past and has been caught for it, they do find soft places to land back in their own community. And they will search and hunt for that soft place to land and find the sympathizers and find the people that will fly their flag for them. And usually we'll find that little nook and cranny in a dark corner where people don't necessarily have all the information or the facts. And so at the risk of being critical of the Iranian community that has gathered around uh, Jian Gomeshi, I just wonder how close attention they paid. And often, you know, we've seen this with other prominent indigenous figures in their Falls from Grace, you know, people decide right from the outset without any information he's not guilty he didn't do it he is indigenous and they've already without any information have decided they're on team uh blank whoever that person is and i feel like in in culturally diverse communities like this we often rush to create a soft place for people to land that fall from grace especially prominent people that you know have this privilege of being in these really exclusive spaces and it makes sense that gomeshi has turned back to his own community to find that soft place to land which is why holding gomeshi and his counterparts to account is important
0: you bring up a lot some interesting stuff there i'm glad you did because it's like you could conclude from the fact that such a prominent member of the Iranian Canadian community is back in Gameshi that he has the support of his community. But this is where you need journalism because when we reported this out, that's right, there were many voices in that community who said, You don't represent me. And then it was the Iranian Canadian Congress denounced the project. So it's like, you know, he could find those supporters who themselves might not remember or know all the details. And kind of talking to Merdad, it didn't seem like uh, I-, I-, I can't say. He didn't seem to be, you know, totally aware of the extent of some of these allegations. He was sort of quick to shrug off the whole thing. But whatever, maybe he still stands by Gameshi. There were other people who were happy, who didn't know. I mean, this podcast was kind of quietly launched and saying, "Okay, here's the place for discussions about the diaspora. And then members of the diaspora, when they found out about it through us, said, "Uh, uh uh-uh, no. And that's their call. It's not my call to make. You know, and Ryan, to the other point, like, I don't mind saying that I benefited from that story. I'm in the news business and you know, maybe it's a dirty business. We benefit. I want big stories and I want, yeah. I want sordid and consequential scandalous stories. I want them, but nothing is for free. Nothing comes for free. And you know, this guy's like, there's a dark cloud that kind of like, I'm linked to him in this way. And he's still got this like little cabal of, of weirdo Twitter Gameshi truthers And, uh, you know, there's like a lot of MRA type. There's a lot of misogyny, like, and it's, it's become a part of my life and that's the cost, you know, I'm out looking for the next story and it comes with stuff. You don't get to walk away, like to carry the facts, to carry the story. There's a responsibility there, but, uh, but absolutely, that's the business that I'm in. So anyhow.
1: Yeah. To sort of just be a little bit more articulate with my point about the soft place to land in community. I'm definitely not inferring that, you know, the Iranian community is, have opened up their arms and said, come home, Jian, and uh, cooked him a warm meal. I know that there are a good number of people that have rejected the project and and have spoken out about it. And similarly, in indigenous communities, it's a nuanced and complex sort of dance there. But I I will definitely say that um, these people go home to find that soft place to land and often are welcomed uh, with no questions asked, and it's, uh, it's a problem.
0: Yeah, it's the questions part. I mean, like, forgiveness is a powerful thing, you know? Reconciliation is a powerful, and it can be a noble thing, but first comes the truth part, right? So, Yeah. All right, Ryan, let's call that our Canada Land Shortcuts for the week. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Listen, it's never been easier to support us. Get ad-free versions of our podcasts. Just click on the link or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. It's five bucks a month Canadian. Get ad-free shows. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read what you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. We're on Instagram at Canada Land Show. Go follow us there. Ryan, where can people find you? I'm at RM Comedy on Instagram and Twitter. Our website where you can read that article I was talking about is canadalandshow.com. We also just published our annual transparency report, and Commons continues its season on the pandemic with a withering look at the privatization of long-term care in Ontario. Listen to that episode. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca.